we're going to have society move forward, don't think someone else is going to fix the world's problems. It is as likely to be you as anyone else. And society, humanity, if we're going to succeed, it's essential that people continue to try their hardest because that is what is going to provide the ideas, and I can't tell you who, that's going to help save society from itself. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy, and ethical life. Although I'm a politician and an economist, this isn't a podcast about politics or economics. It's about living a good life, which is an idea that goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. What Aristotle meant by a good life was the life that one would like to live, a life with pleasure, meaning and richness of spirit, the life that most of us were trying to live until everything else got in the way. In this podcast, I'll seek out guests, not because they're smart, but because they're wise. I'll speak with writers, athletes and social justice campaigners, with people who've been lucky and those who've experienced hard times. I've found their stories fascinating, and I hope you do too. One of my favourite W.A. Jordan poems is The More Loving One. Its last stanza goes, We're all stars to disappear or die. I should learn to look at an empty sky and feel its total dark sublime. Although this might take me a little time. Until Brian Schmidt came along, this was just a spooky metaphor. But along with Saul Perlmutter and Adam Rees, Brian showed that the universe's expansion was accelerating. That means that the stars will one by one eventually start to go out. For this, the King of Sweden gave Brian and his co-authors the 2011 Physics Nobel Prize. In return, Brian gave the King a bottle of Pinot Noir from his vineyard. Born in 1967 in Montana, Brian grew up in Alaska. An only child, he originally thought he'd be a meteorologist, changing to study astronomy at the University of Arizona at the last minute. He did his PhD at Harvard, where he made the extraordinarily wise decision to marry Jenny Gordon, an Australian economist. They moved to Australia in 1994, where he did the work that would later earn him the Nobel at the Mount Stromlo Observatory. After winning the Nobel Prize, most scholars doubled down on the research, but Brian took a different approach, becoming the Australian National University's Vice-Chancellor on the 1st of January 2016. He's quick, wise, and engaged with big questions. Brian, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. Good afternoon, Andrew. So the study of astronomy goes back to the ancient Greeks, uh, that notion of uncovering our place in the universe. Do you see what you've done in astronomy as, as uh, fitting within that lineage? Oh, absolutely. And indeed, I would say it goes back even before the Greeks. If you look at the, uh, you know, the indigenous people of Australia, they had the story of the seven sisters and the stars, and they, they, you know, they were there. I don't think we know exactly what they thought. But the sky and the stars and humanity's place in the universe has been at the forefront of human thought since we were thinking. Uh, you know, humanity's buildup of information has happened over thousands of years. And yes, we've gotten very good at it in the last four or 500 with science. But, you know, we build up from those early days of the Greeks uh, and before, uh, even today. So I do feel part of a very long story. Did you look at the stars a lot when you were a kid? I did. Uh, I would 
you know, I always liked the idea of, uh, you know, planets being able to look at a telescope, see what was going on. Uh, the aurora were part of the sky activities we had, especially in Alaska. Uh, so I was always aware, but, mm. you know, probably no more so than, you know, my kids were or most kids are. Uh, I wasn't obsessed, but I was interested. People always talk about the Montana sky, and so it seems somewhat appropriate that as the... The big sky. Yes. Exactly. As uh, Montana's only Nobel laureate, uh, it's, uh, it's a Nobel in astronomy. Uh, did you find m living in those uh, fairly open places uh, engaged you more with the weather, with your early interest in meteorology and uh, your subsequent interest in, uh, in astronomy? Uh, well, I certainly think that, uh, you know, not being buried in a large city so you can really see the sky all the time is important. Uh, I think with regard to the weather, I mean, Montana and Alaska are dominated by weather. Mm. Uh, it's cold, it's windy, it's snowy. It's a big part of things. Uh, so that naturally gives you an, an affinity to the weather, I think. My father was a biologist, so, uh, you know, he taught me his love of science. So I always liked that idea of science to understand things. And, you know, in addition to biology, I worried about meteorology, astronomy, and everything else you can imagine. At what point in your academic career did you decide that you were going to focus on such a, such a big question of, uh, of the acceleration or, as it then was considered, the deceleration of the universe? Because many scholars spend their careers tweaking other people's work, making modest extensions. Had you always thought of yourself as somebody who wanted to, to make a breakthrough? I guess I never thought about making breakthroughs. I thought about doing interesting things. If you're going to be an astronomer, you're doing it for the, you know, you know, the, the fundamental big questions. So from day one, I always knew if I worked in astronomy, I wanted to work on big questions, questions I could explain to anyone, my grandma or my grandpa. Uh, and so the idea of understanding the future and past of the universe, well, that was a pretty big question, about as big as one can get. The problem is you've got to be able to do it. And so when I suddenly realized in 1994 there was an opportunity mm. uh, caused by essentially technology and knowledge and my own circumstances, then I jumped at it. But the reality is, you know, it's one thing to think big, it's another thing to do big. And time was on my side. The, the right things came together at the right time for me. And the opportunity essentially arose from the application of rapidly growing computing power to uh, digitally available telescope images, wasn't it? Yeah, so uh, you're right. There were, there were really three, four key things. One, 10-meter uh, class telescopes, still the largest telescopes in the world. Those came online in 1994. Great big digital cameras we all use. Well, those were pioneered in astronomy, and those came available in 1994. Mm. Computers were just powerful enough in 1994 to actually analyze those big digital images that we're getting. Uh, and then there was the, the fundamental work done on understanding supernovae, exploding stars, who we could use, the, the, these objects we could use to measure distances. That paper published in 1994. So 1994 was a big year. And how did your, uh, your team come together? Because for the work you were doing, uh, it, was, it was inherently teamwork, right? Uh, uh, well, it was inherently teamwork for me because I was 27 years old. All these things came together in 1994, and I said, my God, we have a chance of doing this big experiment everyone mm. has wanted to do since Einstein you know, invented general relativity. 
And then I'm thinking, but I'm 27. I'm going to need all the telescopes in the world. How are we going to do this? And so I essentially sat down and said, well, who do we need to bring together to make this happen? So I went out and essentially spruiked the idea because uh, people are investing their limited time and effort and said, let's do this together. And everyone said, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do it. And managed to build up a, a team of initially about 12 or 13 people and eventually about 20. What was the secret to putting that team together in what would, I presume, have been a pretty competitive academic uh, environment? I think being able to tell a narrative. It's like most things. People need to have a story. Why is this interesting? So I was out there literally selling. You know, this is what I want to do. This is why we can do it. We're at a time right now, which is important. You need to be part of this because you have a set of skills. Uh, and I've got these other people and, you know, I'm a good person to work with. Isn't this exciting? So that's how we did it. And people had to invest their time. That was what was needed. And doing it out of uh, Australia, uh, was, was that tougher than, uh, than continuing out of uh, Harvard, where you'd presumably begun the work? So I got things started at Harvard, but in some sense, I think coming to Australia was essential. And that's because, you know, the power structures within the United States uh, are there just like they are in Australia, except for I was, I was in them already. And so as a 27-year-old, the idea you can go out and lead this big worldwide thing and be in charge of it, well, they let me get started, but I wasn't going to be able to keep it and do it. And then I would have gone and done something else. So here in Australia, I was the only one doing this. So no one here to take it off me, uh, no one to compete with for, for leadership. So I was able to do it quite um, quite successfully from here, I think, because it was Australia. I, I really don't think um, we would have done what we did if I had been in the United States. And much of the work's done uh, in a period in which Jenny's establishing her career here. She's now one of the top economists at the Productivity Commission. Uh, you're both raising a, a couple of uh, boys. Uh, how did you manage all of, all of that uh, through that, particularly that period of having two young sons? Well, it's a challenge, and I think the challenges come in a few places. You know, you get married. We got married in 1992. Uh, we finished our PhDs about three weeks apart, uh, and that's stressful. I wouldn't recommend that uh, for future uh, people working on their PhDs. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, just before that, we had applied for jobs. You know, in 1992, it turns out the U.S. academic market bottomed out. It was the worst year, uh, not repeated again until like 2009, 10. Uh, and, you know, I applied to 35 places and she applied to 35 places. And she ended up with a job in Sydney and a job in uh, Washington, D.C. And I ended up with a job in Pasadena and a job in Boston. So at that point, you have to make a hard decision. What are you going to do? Uh, and we had made a very you know, strong commitment that we didn't get married to live apart. And so at that time, Jenny was ready uh, to start a family. I wasn't quite as ready myself. Uh, and we made the decision that, okay, uh, start a family. Within two years, we'll find two good jobs uh, at the same spot. Uh, quite frankly, it's much more... It's much easier to get a job as an economist with a PhD from Harvard than in astrophysics. And so I more or less had committed uh, to find something where Jenny had a good job. 
so we went on with life with that. We had Kieran, our first son, in 1994 as well. Again, a big year for me. Uh, Jenny took on a short-term position, um, and uh, that was fine, but it wasn't gonna, you know, wasn't what she wanted to do for the rest of her life. And then during that time, I kept applying around the world. One of the places I applied was here at the ANU. Mount Stromo is one of the great departments of the world. And on the fourth attempt, I got a job. Uh, and when I got the job here, uh, Jenny applied for six positions here in Canberra and uh, got all six. So <laughs> that's sort of the difference between her and me. It took me four goes. <laughs> she got six applications, six jobs. Uh, well, here, um, you know, Kieran, young, you know, before two, she's working in a hard job. I'm working in a hard job. It's a tough time. You, you're, you're, you're tired, you're grumpy, and, you know, you try to keep things in balance, but it's a tough time in your life. Uh, and our kids didn't sleep particularly well. Uh, in 1997, uh, she gave birth to Adrian. That was right in the middle when I was making the discovery. Jenny were here. She would tell you exactly uh, how obsessed I was with my work at that point, probably unhealthily. Uh, so, and it, so I would say it caused, you know, stress, uh, especially on her. Uh, once, uh, we managed to get, you know, I guess in 1998, after a year or two, we made the discovery, uh, and things calmed down, you know, it wasn't just a panic. In 1997, my job was ending, didn't know what I was going to do, looked to me like I was going to leave astronomy. Hmm. I applied for a job, I finished fourth in the job. And I was literally looking and saying, well, I guess I'm going to finish astronomy. Uh, fortunately, three people in front of me uh, didn't take the position, and I ended up offering that position. I started that job on the 1st of January, made our discovery on the 8th of January. Uh, <laughs> so that's how close a run thing it was. Uh, and I could have easily done something else, which I would have been fine because I had my life more or less in order. But... Life is a balance, and I think as uh, the kids got a bit older uh, and maybe my life got a little more secure, I was a bit more careful with, uh, you know, how much time and effort I put into family as opposed to being obsessed with my work. And part of it's just getting mature. So I don't want to lose the strand on work-life balance, but since we're at the 20th anniversary, uh, the, uh, more or less, of uh, this extraordinarily lucky moment, I can't but help think of the, the role that Lux played in a range of moments in your career. Uh, the serendipity of the, the Harvard job market, the luck of you choosing astronomy rather than meteorology to study at Arizona. Uh, you know, a standard sort of canard is that uh, successful people think luck matters less than it does, unsuccessful people think luck matters more than it really does. But you seem to place a fairly st high value on the, the role of luck in your career. Yeah, I mean, luck is incredibly important uh, in anyone's life to a point, but it depends on what you think is important in life. What's important in my life? Uh, my family, my relationships with my family, having enough money, um, being happy. There's not a lot of luck to that. There's a little bit, but it's not, you know, I've worked hard to make sure that's, that's true. Uh, winning a Nobel Prize, that had luck involved. Uh, but that wasn't what I was after in life. It wasn't what defines my life even today. And, yeah, those opportunities that allow you to 
sort of fly high to the pinnacle of, uh, of what people think is possible have a lot of luck. And that's one of, uh, you know, one of the things I've learned is that uh, there's a lot of great people doing great things in the world. And the people who you think are the superstars are actually the ones who typically have had luck. And yeah, they had to do good work, hmm. but luck is an essential ingredient. Are there things that you and Jenny do in order to manage that uh, that stress or techniques that you learned uh, following on from that sort of uh, crunch point in 1997? Uh, well, I try not to work on the weekends, um, and I have to a little bit in the new job as vice chancellor, but I try to control it. Uh, I don't, you know, I try not to read emails on weekends, ever. Uh, I do sometimes, but it's not, I don't want to become addicted to the work. Mm. It's a matter of segmenting your life and uh you know i am in a challenging job that is stressful it does require i'm afraid more than 35 hours a week but it doesn't mean i can't have turnoff times and it means that when i'm sitting at you know breakfast table or maybe the dinner table i'm not sitting there working i'm i'm engaged mm. i'm spending time meaningful time with people and we spend a lot of time you know just being ourselves and not overcomplicate life and you know you don't always have to go on a vacation. Just spending time and working together on our farm, for example, is, is one of the most valuable things we do together. The vineyard does seem to be a big part of your identity. I mean, your Twitter handle is Cosmic Pinot, uh, which uh, neatly sums up the duality in Brian Schmidt. Uh, what is it that the, the vineyard gives you? It gives me something very different than academia. Uh, it has quite a creative aspect to it. That is a different circle of people, different circle of pursuits. Uh, has different set of constraints. Um, it's a different outlet, but it also has associated with it a rhythm that goes along with the year. I, you know, I grew up in rural and farming type areas. Mm. It connects me to the land and uh, you know to the weather and to you know to the to the earth, so to speak. And I find that as a very valuable counterpoint to academia, which has its own separate rhythm, and it helps me ensure academia doesn't take over my life. It's that's why it's so very useful. Does it also help you get away from technology? I mean, do you find do you find the encroachment of technology onto onto your life is is kept at bay in some way by uh, by the farming? So I would say that I wouldn't say it keeps technology. I actually integrate technology into what I do, but not every aspect of it. Um, it I try not to let technology encroach onto you know you know encroach into any part of my life. That being said, I, I use it, I use it well, but I, I'm not scared not to use it. You mm. know, when I cook, sometimes I use technology, sometimes I don't. When I go out and look at the sky, sometimes I just use my eyes. Actually, that's the normal way I do it. Sometimes I use a telescope. In the vineyard, do the chemistry when I need to, and then I let wild yeast run amok and do their thing. But I have confidence and understanding of what's going on in most of the time. So I always use technology as an adjunct, but I try not to let it... Uh, overrule uh, what makes life interesting. Mm. Rather, I use mm. it as, uh, you know, augmentation to make life better. Yes. Uh, how did winning the Nobel Prize change your life and how did it change you? I hope it hasn't changed me too much. It's changed my life in that you go from being someone who has a pretty normal life uh, to someone who can essentially call up anyone on planet Earth with enough time and get a meeting. 
that may or may not be interesting to people, but the, the fact is that it is an opportunity you suddenly have. You get lots of bizarre opportunities to do kind of cool, weird things. You get to meet a lot of famous people. Uh, you get opportunities to do things you just didn't have access to do before. With that opportunity um, comes some responsibility, uh, but it also cause, uh, comes with the need to adjust because those things can completely overrun your life. And it's hard to adjust to having too many opportunities. Uh, and, you know, I described winning the Nobel Prize as like uh, saying, oh, I'd like I'd like some chocolate, and then a dump truck dumping five tons of chocolate <laughs> on you, and you're sort of drowning in something you love. Uh, and that's sort of what it's like. And the other thing that I happened, and one of the reasons why I wanted, I had eventually decided to uh, become vice chancellor, is vice chancellor is an incredibly hard job. Uh, it's challenging. It is something that's challenging despite being a Nobel Prize winner where when you become Nobel Prize winner, everything kind of becomes easy, and your ability to just sit down and do research uh, is actually surprisingly difficult because there's all these distractions and things in the way. Uh, and I saw that. And it doesn't mean I couldn't do reasonable research, but was I ever going to be at my peak? No, not going to happen. I had, it was too easy. And the reality is to be a great researcher and to do great things, at least for me, had to be my reason to live. It had to be the one thing I worked on, and that's how you do great things. Mm. Is that you, you, you? That's how you are able to really get in and do stuff. The vice chancellor job has got that same single purpose to it. Yeah, gotta live it. And so it sort of forced me to find my, you know, my mojo again. I guess. Yes, James Heckman reportedly said that he was uh, too busy to win a Nobel Prize after he got his in economics. Uh, that challenge of having as you say, the dump truck of chocolate. Uh, but uh, to, in the in the new role, and I've got to say, when you first told me you were thinking about putting in an application for the vice chancellorship, uh, I thought it was a terrible idea. Uh, it took me a little while to uh, to come around and to to see how the skills you have fit you for the role that you've uh, you've got. But uh, now a year into the role, what are you proudest of? Um. So I think uh, a year in, when I talk to people here, I think they're beginning to believe once again in what the ANU is about, uh, realizing that the ANU is about being a great university, realizing that being a great university isn't just something that happens. It actually requires everyone uh, to work hard at and to focus on. And realizing that if you do that, you can actually make a difference. So I think I've somewhat changed people's own reflections on what it means to be part of this university and why we have a responsibility, if we're going to be the national university, to be something special. And it doesn't mean we have to be mean and condescending to everyone else. Indeed, we should be helping all of our peers, given our special status. But it means hard work. It means the willing to change. It means really thinking about what the National University is in, 19, in 2016, 70 years after we were formed. It's not the same. So I hope I've, I've got people thinking about what it means to be at this university. How would you characterize your leadership style? 
Uh, I'm very, uh, same way I do my science, which is very inclusive. I like uh, communication, really important to me. People need knowing what I'm thinking. I want to know what they're thinking. Uh, I try to make uh, definitive decisions when they need to be made, but when I do that, I try to give people the signaling that why they're happening um, and make sure I have everyone has the opportunity to tell me why what I'm doing is a bad idea and then me being prepared to tell them why I'm doing despite their reservations is the right thing as best I can defend it so I really just try to be open and I'm very open to criticism uh, you have to be in this job and I, I've learned that's one of the things I've learned in this job is to take a deep breath and not get defensive and mm. say okay that's your point of view you're being honest about it and let me think what that means and try to be objective about it and, and be reflective when I don't do well. What's been hardest about the last year? I think the, the, the hardest jobs come in two things. From a strategic point of view is people hate change. As a politician, you will know this. Uh, you can have the best idea, and as long as it is in addition to what people already have, no problem. But if you want people to do B instead of A, good luck. Uh, some people are fine, but the average person is not, and there'll be a very strong resistance. So trying to overcome that issue and trying to get people to engage with change, strategically, that's the big challenge at this university. Uh, and that's true, I think, almost everywhere. Uh, in terms of the job, the hard part is there are messy problems which have no clean solution. You can do A, and you can do B. If you do A, these people are disadvantaged. If you do B, other people are disadvantaged. And your job is to make a decision of which no one is going to love you. But mm. people who are not disadvantaged say, uh, okay, thanks. But And the people hate you who are hurt. On the other way, it's the same thing. So there are essentially these no-win decisions which you just have to make. That's the really hard part about this job. Uh, and then conveying trust, honesty, empathy for those who are affected. And uh, that's the part I find hard Yes. Uh, at this job. Um, I've had people continually say, well, it's all right, after a year or two, it won't bother you anymore. A and I, I hope that's not true, because uh, it sure bothers me now. And I think to be a good leader at a university, those hard decisions have to hurt. And when they quit hurting, then it's probably time for you to go do something else. Let me sh shift tack from uh, your day job to your night job, uh, being, a, being a parent, uh, well, nights and weekends and wherever else you fit it in. Uh, many of us want to inculcate a, a love of science to our kids. Uh, do you have any tips from the way in which you've brought up Kieran and Adrian for uh, bringing more science into our parenting? So it's much easier to get people excited about science if you're excited about science, and uh, that's true of anything. Good way to get people excited about economics as well. Uh, although my wife struggles with my kids. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm quite excited. To hear that. She's got me excited about economics uh, <laughs> after a long time. But I think, um, you know, trying to force your kids, saying this is important for you, that doesn't work. I think the reason my dad was so effective is he just had me do it with him. And I could see how excited he was. I was excited. I felt important. Uh, 
So there are lots of little experiments you can do as parents. Uh, and indeed, we have um, developed part of the academy this uh, whole program called Primary Connections, which I donated part of the Nobel Prize to, to help save, um, and, and successfully, which was great. Def best $50,000 I ever spent in my life. And there we developed, the academy is developed for primary school teachers, experiments, which you can just build up from normal stuff. But those are the types of things that you can look up on the web and you can do at home. Uh, and the way I did it successfully with my younger son, Adrian, who's studying physics and engineering here at ANU now, uh, is I sort of did it the first time and then I said, well, why don't you find an experiment you want to do and we'll do it. Uh, and so we did that once and then I was busy the next time and he just did it on his own the third time. So it's it's getting them to want and get excited. Being able to show up at Questacon is a good way to start that mm. uh, program. Uh, Adrian is actually working at Questacon uh, part time okay. as well, doing little experiments for people if you see them. Uh, and I should say you've uh, given them your Nobel Prize. To that's sit, sit, right. Sit in the foyer there. Which, it's in the uh, foyer. We always, we always enjoy checking out when we're there. Yeah, it's solid. Well, it's not solid. It's twenty-one karat gold. So there's about twenty thousand dollars worth of gold in that thing. Uh, and the university was not keen having it on my desk, so <laughs> it's uh, it is in the safekeeping of Questacon for uh, semi-permanent uh, purposes until they don't want it anymore. Uh, so I really do think it's about it's about experimentation. Um, it's about when kids, as they inevitably do, ask questions about science. You don't say, oh, I don't know. You actually go through, well, let's figure it out. That's science. And so I, I think you get those little rare opportunities. And every kid will ask you a question. Why does this work? How come? Whatever. Hmm. And rather than saying, I don't know, use those moments. And it can mean getting on the web. It can be talking through. It can be doing an experiment. Use those precious moments to, to get people to realize that there are answers out there for those things. Ask Dr. Carl. Everyone else does. He was a fantastic Fenner lecturer for, uh, when, when he came down and gave his yeah. talk. And uh, yes, that ability to instill an excitement about science is pretty extraordinary. Uh, let me wrap up with a set of questions that I ask all of my interviewees. Uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self? So I'm going to be honest. Good. I nailed it as a teenager. I wasn't too worried about life. I said, I don't, I don't know really what I want to do. I know I need to get some good skills, so I went off and did astronomy. Not ever think I'd be an astronomer, but knowing the skills would be fine and figuring something will turn out. Good idea. I didn't worry about getting the 99.9 uh, test score. I worried about doing well, but I also made sure I did drama, I did music, I did art, I did theater, I did sports. Uh, I had a balanced life, and I didn't get the highest score. I don't think it hurt me. Indeed, it enriched my life and has helped me immeasurably later on in life. Balanced life. Uh, my, my teenage self was, you got lucky in having um, more confidence than you should have. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, I just didn't know what else to do. But I realize now that not knowing what to do and not worrying about it was the correct way forward. That is... I always tell you know young people now is you're gonna have hard days, hard months, even hard years in your life. If you stick with it, stay positive, 
eventually good things happen to you. And if you're one of the four people where that doesn't happen, the happiest you're going to be is being positive going forward. It is the way forward. Be positive, do your best, and that's the best life's going to get. Don't overthink it. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? I used to believe that there were these amazing people out there who were just superhuman and all these famous people, be scientists, movie stars, whatever, were, you know, just not like normal people. Now that I've had a chance to actually meet them all, you realize they're just normal people. And, you know, whether or not you're Bono, you're President Obama, or, you know, you're the smartest physicist I've ever met, you're all kind of normal people, and they're surprisingly similar in how they are. They're just, they have the same way of looking at the world as you or I, and there is no superhuman. We're all people, and that's where that luck comes in. Uh, it comes with that passion that makes people successful. But in the end, those people are just like you or me that had some luck, had some drive. Uh, and if we're going to have society move forward, don't think someone else is going to fix the world's problems. It is as likely to be you as anyone else. And society, humanity, if we're going to succeed, it's essential that people continue to try their hardest because that is what is going to provide the ideas, and I can't tell you who, that's going to help save society from itself. When are you most happy? I am most happy um, all, all the time that I'm doing and thinking. I love to think problems, small, large, and it can be everything from just trying to solve how to solve a problem quite simple around the house, the winery, or trying to solve a problem that's as big as the scale of the universe. I love to sit and ponder that, that, especially that initial stages where you're just thinking through the first bits and you get the germ of the idea that's then going to require three months worth of work. I love that first germ of the idea. And you know you've got it when it comes to it. It's like, oh, there it is, clarity. I remember the pride you took uh, once in showing me the glass cork on your uh, your Pinot bottles, uh, which is presumably one of those sort of uh, break breakthroughs on the uh, on the farm. Yeah, so I mean, the winery is kind of crazy. I mean, so there's a great pride when you sort of realize after a couple of mistakes how to make wine. You sort of like, well, this is how I'm going to do it, and it's going to work. And it's, it's having that confidence to know that mm. uh, you haven't got everything, but you got an idea, a train, glass corks, wild ferments, Pinot and Canberra, uh, and you know it's going to work one way or another uh, with some hiccups, but overall it'll work out. Great feeling. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Um, uh, the most important thing I do is to sit down and talk to my my family about anything we talk about anything you can imagine we have those great conversations about you know life the universe and anything uh probably more economics than we should uh and less astronomy than we should. <laughs> but uh though those are the those are the things that uh I, I it's the most important thing to me do you have any guilty pleasures i have many guilty pleasures <laughs> uh, chocolate 
cooking, I love to cook, uh, not necessarily locale things. Obviously, wine is a guilty pleasure. Uh, yeah, I, you'd have to say Twitter is a bit of a guilty pleasure for me as well. What person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Um, I guess... I mean, I grew up with parents who are extremely ethical, uh, and they taught me. You know, there's, there's, a, I, I was, I could get away with most things, but if I lied, or did something dishonest, game over. There, there was zero tolerance, even little stuff, zero tolerance, uh, and so that's sort of the way I was constructed. What I have discovered, and I think this is important is that I really do live a zero tolerance. I just, I just don't cheat, you know? People say, well, you know, are you gonna claim that on your taxes? The answer is no, because although the rules may make it okay, it's just clearly not, you know, part of the winery expense, for example. So I, I lead things extremely clean on things like that. And in the end, what I have discovered in my dealings with people, uh, dealings in life, when you live like that, you're almost not disadvantaged because everyone trusts you. Everyone knows you have no skeletons in your closet, that you're a completely trustworthy person, and they go out of their way to help you in life. Uh, and so from what my parents did, um, that has translated as I see lots of people fall by the wayside where people just don't trust them because maybe only once in their life they did something untrustworthy. But you know, once mm -hmm. trust is broken, it's gone. So uh, my life has uh, showed me that it's a great way to live and you're actually not disadvantaged by it. Brian Schmidt, laureate, winemaker and vice-chancellor, thanks for taking the time to speak in the Good Life podcast today. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. If you like this podcast, please let your friends know on Facebook, Twitter or your favourite social media app. Next week, Olympian Sean Crichton on versatility, coaching and comebacks.